Science starts with the words, I don't know. When we admit that, we can start to unravel the mysteries of the universe. Are we alone? Will we settle other worlds? How will we survive climate change? What will humanity look like in a thousand years? Join the greatest science minds and me, Dustin Driver, as we go through the unknown. No fancy sci-fi introduction is needed this time, folks, because today we have world-renowned CRISPR expert Sam Sternberg. Sam worked with biochemist, author, and science celebrity Jennifer Doudna to refine CRISPR gene editing technology at UC Berkeley. The two wrote the best-selling book, A Crack in Creation, about the discovery and what it can mean for humanity. Today, Sam is working on CRISPR at Columbia University in New York. Sam was kind enough to take an hour or so out of his busy schedule to chat about CRISPR and how it's being used to revolutionize science and medicine. So without further ado, here's my chat with Sam Sternberg. What I'd like to start out with is a very basic description of CRISPR and how it works. Sure. Well, do you want to know about CRISPR in bacteria or CRISPR as a technology? Let's start with CRISPR and bacteria, just so that we can get an idea of, of how it works in nature before we uh, talk about how it works in, bi in uh, biochemistry or Got in it. the lab. So the acronym itself, as you I'm sure know, stands for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats. Um, that's basically the term that was given to these specialized regions of the genome of DNA from bacteria that was first discovered in 1987 before the term CRISPR existed. By the early 2000s, um, researchers were seeing these same bizarre repeating sequences in about half of all bacterial species whose DNA was being sequenced. So the term, the, the, the core feature is it's these series of repeats where the same sequence is kind of present many, many times, separated by the same exact length of intervening sequence. This was a pattern that hadn't really ever been seen before. And so by the mid-2000s, it was recognized that this is pervasive. It exists all across the bacterial and archaeal kingdoms, but the function was a big mystery for 20 years. Um, it was in 2005 when the first clues came out what it might be doing, and that was a result of the observation that if you focus not on the repeating sequences, but the little snippets of DNA tucked in between the repeats, these were often a perfect match to viral DNA. And so that was the first clue that CRISPRs had something to do with viruses and maybe might be functioning as a viral immune system. Um, these are bacterial viruses, so just like humans and other kind of higher organisms, um, bacteria also have viruses that have the threat of infecting them. And these bacteria-specific viruses are actually one of the most prevalent forms of life on our planet. So you can go into the, any pretty much any environment where you find bacteria, and you'll find viruses there too that infect those bacteria, and they usually outnumber those bacteria about 10 to 1. So... It wasn't a big surprise, actually, that bacteria might have a new way of defending against viruses. And just in the last couple of years, researchers are continuing to discover new immune systems that bacteria have evolved to fend off this threat. So it's kind of a cool area of research because this is one of the oldest um, kind of evolutionary struggles between different types of life. You have bacteria 
and the viruses that infect them. And over billions of years of evolution, both sides have evolved different mechanisms for attack and defense. And so this is pre uh, what we think of as an immune system. This is so basic, it's on a genetic level, and that these uh, little bits of viral DNA between the CRISPR are used to identify um, attacking viruses as they enter the bacterial cell. Exactly. And it was appreciated before CRISPRs that bacteria have immune systems, but all of the ones before CRISPR fall into the bucket of being innate, meaning bacteria have these kind of defenses, but they can't learn. They can't adapt over time. Humans, of course, have adaptive immune systems, so we can develop antibodies against new pathogens, and that's one of the reasons why something like vaccination works, because you can actually vaccinate a baby with a small amount of attenuated or defective virus, and now that will lead to a permanent reservoir of immune cells that can detect and destroy that pathogen if it ever infects the human again later in life. Up until 2005, 2007, it wasn't thought that bacteria had evolved this complex of an immune system to actually adapt over time. And that's what's actually special about CRISPR, it can learn. And so by splicing sequences of DNA from a virus into its own genetic material, CRISPRs actually give the bacterium a permanent reservoir of information that it can recall any time in the future. Kind of like you might keep biometric identifications like fingerprints or retinal scans stored so you can recognize certain individuals time and time again by those identifiers. Mm -hmm. Bacteria are actually doing the exact same thing with DNA. So they store little bits of DNA from the virus in, a, in their own genome so that they can recall that information to recognize those same viruses during a future infection. So I think we got right back into the weeds, which I think you wanted me to stay out of. But <laughs> the point being, CRISPRs were discovered in bacteria, and it was discovered after many years of research that they enable bacteria to remember viral infections and use that information to destroy viruses during future infections. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of the um, full investigation of how that works that really led to this technology that we now know of as today, as CRISPR-based gene editing. Right. And this, uh, this technology is, is basically taking that natural process and instead of inserting the viral DNA that was used for identification, it's um, researchers can now in insert pretty much any snippet of DNA they'd like. Exactly. So that was, you know, in the, in the kind of landmark paper from Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier, they made this switch where they swapped out the natural viral sequence for a user-defined sequence. So in that first paper, they actually wanted to show that they could target any gene they wanted. They were targeting a jellyfish gene that codes for a fluorescent protein that was just a convenient bit of DNA that was lying around the lab. But they could take this gene from a completely different source and select arbitrarily different sequences of the gene to target with CRISPR convert that information into a snippet of RNA, the kind of uh, functioning molecule that CRISPR systems use for that identification, and then show that indeed these core components could now use this user-defined sequence to slice apart the jellyfish gene anywhere, anywhere they wanted to. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of was the clinching piece of evidence that this was in fact programmable, that 
whereas bacteria are using CRISPRs to learn from past infections to destroy viruses, that researchers could now program the same system to recognize and cut and eventually edit any sequence that they might be interested in. Mm. And of course now in the area of genome in the era of genomics where we have full genome sequences for, for humans, for mice, for non-human primates, for for a growing list of organisms, mm. if you have the ability to program this machine to target and edit any genomic sequence of interest, we can now, you know, it really opens up the possibilities to almost anything. Yeah. Um, so we were say, you know, you were saying before that they use this jellyfish um, gene that, that uh, codes for actually the um, glowing element of the jellyfish. That's used in the lab quite a bit, isn't it, um, to help actually just see things under a microscope or identify certain areas of cells, correct? That's yeah, GFP. First... Mm -hmm. GFP got the Nobel Prize um, how many years ago now? Four, five years ago? Mm -hmm. um, actually, one of the Nobel Prize laureates for that was is here at Columbia, where I just moved to from my own lab. Um, and it's actually, you know, a lot of these other technologies have now dovetailed with CRISPR. So, for example, one of the, um, you know, CRISPR is used for gene editing, of course, but, um, you know, the, the possible applications has grown well beyond just making permanent changes to DNA sequences. Now researchers have combined the CRISPR, com CRISPR components with this glowing protein to give uh, to enable a new way of actually tracking specific chromosomes, specific genes in living cells, where you might want to understand how different regions of the nucleus where the genomic information is stored actually changes its three-dimensional organization during development, during some process where the cell might be reacting to information. So you can actually program CRISPR to attach itself to a very specific part of the genome, and as long as you've fused CRISPR to this GFP protein, you now actually can see exactly the region where it's attached by looking at glowing bits of light under the microscope. Mm -hmm. That's so it's genius, yeah. Yeah, so you know, I think for me as a researcher, what's been really exciting is to see not only the gene editing technology develop, but all these other decorations of CRISPR, all these other ways that the core fundamental components, which in the end just you know yield a way of targeting specific regions of the genome, all the different ways that that core function functionality can be harnessed for all different kinds of applications. Yeah, so it's not just um, for gene editing, but it's valuable in all areas of biological research. Yeah. That's right. And, you know, I just finished writing a review article um, on CRISPR-Cas systems and the way they're being developed for technologies. And it used to be that we would use the term genome engineering as a larger umbrella term, which would encompass not just gene editing, but also things like I just talked about where you might image different regions of the genome. So just engineering to refer globally to all these different ways of, of manipulating genetic information. But in fact, now there have been even new developments harnessing different parts of CRISPR systems for things that don't even fall under the bucket of genome engineering. So for example, in the last couple of years, there's been more research into the different flavors of CRISPR systems that are found in bacteria not just those that utilize this Cas9 protein, which is the key protein that is the source of almost all gene editing experiments to date, but other enzymes, other proteins that other types of bacteria use together with CRISPR. 
And it turns out that one of these newer, newly discovered enzymes called Cas13, so it's the, the Cas part is the same, the number's different. This enzyme turns out to be amazingly useful for what's called nucleic acid detection, or ways of detecting the presence of specific DNA or RNA sequences. And that's actually now been developed by Feng Zhang and other researchers at the Broad Institute into a new tool for potentially detecting pathogens in human blood or detecting particular mutations associated with cancer in some kind of diagnostic approach. And that's not even genome engineering, that's now kind of a new point of care tool where you could actually use it in the field for, for you know, epidemiological studies on the spread of viruses or the spread of bacterial pathogens. So I think, you know, there's really no limit, at least in sight, as to the ways that these different components, molecular components in CRISPR systems can be harnessed in different ways. Yeah, it's very exciting. It's almost as if um, it's, uh, you know, as if we've been given a bucket of Legos, so to speak. Biological yeah, I love, Lego. Yeah. yeah, I love that. I love that metaphor. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it's and actually the, the, I brought in a classic line from Max Delbruck, who was a physicist in the early 20th century who actually moved into biology and made some seminal discoveries in the field of bacterial genetics. And he um, gave a lecture in 1946 where he described studies of bacteria and bacterial viruses as a playground where physicists were starting to kind of join in and play around with these different things to learn about the source of, of genetics and molecular genetics. And I like that analogy because I think as a researcher entering the CRISPR field in the last 10 years, you can just see this amazing diversity in the different enzymes that are involved, the different kinds of RNA molecules, the differences between CRISPR systems in E. coli or Pseudomonas or Streptococcus. Mm. And it's absolutely a playing ground because you have all these different components that have different kinds of properties and it's just a matter of kind of first understanding how they work and then being creative in how you might be able to use them in different ways. Mm. Yeah, I, yeah, I also think it's a, a little bit poetic um, that I think there was sort of a mechanical view of editing DNA in the, in the early in the early days or maybe using a, a virus itself to sort of edit DNA and then um, lo and behold, uh, nature has a perfect way of doing that. Um, that turns out to be a lot easier than anything that I think researchers had thought of previously. One yeah. of the lessons I think absolutely to take away from the study of CRISPRs is often letting, you know, following your curiosity and how nature has solved certain problems is a much better strategy to uncovering new technologies than to think you might be able to invent it or build it yourself. Um, that's And that's been true time and time again in the area of biotechnology, where you can go, you know, we talked about immune systems and bacteria. It was actually the study of innate immune systems three or four decades ago that led to the discovery of a different class of enzymes called restriction enzymes. And those are completely different kinds of enzymes bacteria use to recognize and degrade viral DNA. And those actually paved the way for the entire revolution in recombinant DNA technology, different ways of splicing together and assembling artificial chromosomes that 
ended up spawning the development of the entire kind of biotech industry back in the 1970s. So I think, again, that was an example where the study of something fundamental in nature opened up this fertile playground for the development of a completely new technology, not by kind of inventing enzymes from scratch, but by pulling from what nature had already solved itself over the course of evolution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a, I guess there, there's no substitute for millions and millions of years of, of evolution. <laughs> That's can't, definitely true. Yeah, yeah. You can't compete with that really. <clears throat> you can't compete with it. So now that we, now that we have CRISPR, what can be done with it realistically? Um, I know when I talked to Amy um, at OHSU, they were able to use CRISPR to, um, for lack of a better word, repair a single gene um, disease that was in an embryo. But what about CRISPR treatments for people who are already sick? Um, I know there seems to be maybe a little bit of confusion about what CRISPR could be used for um, practically in medicine. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, so, yeah, I think it's important to distinguish between how CRISPR has been already shown to be successful in the laboratory versus I think what is still, in reality, a, an open question, which is how effective it'll be in clinical trials and in actual patients. So I show a, a slide often when I give talks you can pull from the hundreds of papers that have been published, you know, just a small fraction to appreciate how easy it's become to repair disease associated mutations in the laboratory. And I would say, you know, even Amy's work at OHSU showing that in human embryos, they showed that you can do it in human embryos, but you know, technically speaking, it wasn't yet done to the point where we actually see a reversal of any symptoms in a patient. And the same thing goes for a lot of the work that's been done at the proof of concept level in cultured human cells, where you can take cells from a patient, you can take cells from a mouse model, you can take engineered cells that have a disease-associated mutation. It's become fairly trivial to repair those mutations when you're just growing the cells in culture in the laboratory. The real challenge Um, in kind of translating that success into the clinic is going to be, for one, um, tackling this issue of delivery, of how do you now deliver CRISPR not into cells that you're growing in a Petri dish where they're quite easy to manipulate, but actually access the fraction of cells that you might be seeking to edit in a living patient where you have the immune system to combat against, where you have other, you know, natural barriers for getting genetic material or protein and RNA into cells. And then, frankly, you have the challenge of, of figuring out how many cells does one need to edit to have a reversal of the symptoms that might be causing a disease. So, you know, we're made up of some 30 or 40 trillion cells. There's no way in hell that you're going to be able to get CRISPR into even a tiny fraction of that because we're just too large. You know, we're made up of too many cells that you can edit very many of them. And so it's a matter of, of going after diseases where you can edit a small number of cells, perhaps in a particular organ or a particular tissue type, and show that that has some um, consequence on the symptoms that that disease causes. Hmm. So I think one of the examples um, where this might be uh, more accessible would be diseases of the blood. So for example, a disease like sickle cell or, or beta thalassemia 
where the primary effect is on the red blood cells that ferry oxygen throughout the body. Of course, every cell in a patient's body that suffers from one of those diseases will have the same mutations, but they only really wreak havoc in red blood cells where the hemoglobin protein where that mutation exists actually carries out its primary function. And so even though those patients have that mutated copy of the gene all over the body, if you can edit it in the stem cells or the precursor cells that turn into red blood cells, you can have a massive improvement in their, in their symptoms, even though you've only actually edited a small proportion of their total cells. And so for diseases like that, um, what researchers are, are pursuing are actually removing those stem cells that turn into red blood cells from the patient, editing them at the hemoglobin gene in vitro, so outside of the body, kind of in the laboratory, and then returning those repaired stem cells back into the patient, where as long as they can engraft in the bone marrow and kind of now serve as a future reservoir of repaired cells, that might be sufficient to kind of alleviate many of the symptoms of the disease. Got it. So it's um, so analogy would be say you have the stem cells within the bone marrow are basically red blood cell factories, uh huh, um, and they're broken in in patients that have um, I would say probably the the sickle cell two two copies of the sickle cell gene, and so they're able to remove that stem cell, repair it, repair the factory and put it back into bone marrow and at which point it can start creating regular uh, red blood cells that that, that uh, don't have any of the same symptoms that sickle cells do. Yeah, that yeah. was much better stated than I did. So, <laughs> so I mean, that's really interesting and it, and it gets um, down to the point I think that Amy was making that there are a lot of these single gene uh, mutation diseases that they are studying at OHSU. Um, and there's just one gene involved. And a lot of um, genetic diseases are like this. There's one disease, di um, gene involved. But for many other things, there are multiple genes. Um, and I think that there's a little confusion about the amount of complexity involved once you have more than one gene involved in the system. So can you talk about sort of, you know, what changes when you say you have a disease that there's one gene that's that causes the disease, and there's another disease that maybe there are two or three or four. Um, the level of complexity when you get into those other diseases um, make it almost impossible, right, in order to, to even start treating them. Is that, is that fair to say? It certainly increases the complexity substantially, mm -hmm. and I would say, um, yeah, and then there are other diseases that don't even have particular mutations that are known. I mean, there are diseases that result from other things beyond just point mutations in individual genes. Sure. It might be epigenetic in nature, or there might be, you know, tissue, you know, some defects in certain tissues that are a consequence of genetic factors, but mm. but no amount of gene editing can address those because Whoa. it may happen much earlier in development. So I think I mean the number of diseases that will be targeted in these early years of gene editing-based therapies are going to be confined to the, and I put simplest in quotes here, though you won't be able to see me putting it in quotes, mm -hmm. but you know the simplest of 
diseases that really have a, that are monogenic, meaning a single mutated gene is at their source, mm -hmm. and that it's known that that mutation in that single gene is causative for the disease. Because those are, are instances where you know that if you have a way to repair that mutation, you might, you know, at least the cells that you've edited will now be free of the etiology of the source of that disease. Um, that's not to say that making multiplexed changes won't be possible. And in fact, one of the areas of active investigation at the research level is how we can um, make CRISPR more effective at carrying out multiple changes simultaneously in a cell. And I'd say that's where CRISPR um, has major advantages compared to previous technologies, which were much more difficult to multiplex because of the way that these um, editing platforms were constructed. I don't need to go into the details, but the point is because of the way that CRISPR uses a protein together with a guide RNA, it turns out to be much easier to program CRISPR to target multiple different genes, even within a single cell. Mm. Now, you deal with some simple math where if you only have a certain efficiency at editing one site, let's say even 90%, which is pretty darn good, if you need to edit both chromosomes for that site, now you have to multiply 0.9 times 0.9 to get the percentage of cells that have both changes. And now if you want to talk about adding in a second gene times two chromosomes or a third one, the number of cells at a given efficiency of editing per site that have changes at every single chromosome you intended goes down pretty quickly. Mm. And so that's where I think there are going to be challenges with getting this kind of multiplexed editing at a high enough efficiency where this turns out to really be actionable in a clinical setting. Mm. So it becomes much harder to change more than one gene in more than one cell. And it's, um, okay. Yeah, but that, of course there are caveats there. So mm -hmm. um, if you talk about doing this in stem cells, which are, are, can be grown indefinitely outside of the laboratory, they're immortal. Now, you know, in theory, one could make one set of changes, do sequencing to make sure you've made the change you want, derive clones from those stem cells where you, you know you have the cell that has exactly the changes you want, and in theory, you can now sequentially make changes to that same population and clonally derive new cell lines with additive with changes made additively over time. Mm. So that's of course very far away from from you know pursuing this in in clinical setting in patients. Yeah. But you know if you're talking about going back to those blood stem cells, you might be able to you know engineer changes sequentially in certain settings, um, maybe more in a research setting, but also potentially in a way that might be useful clinically down the road if you can go to cells that you can culture outside of the patient's body. Okay, so now um, I think it's inevitable we got into the weeds again. <laughs> but um, let's try to take a step back, and I actually want to—I uh, wonder if you can indulge me in in a little bit more fun line of thought. I know in uh, science fiction they really love the idea of being able to use gene editing technology like CRISPR to sort of create these um, fantastical lab-grown creatures. <laughs> and almost uh, view DNA as, like we were saying before, the, the Lego block um, concept. Um, is that in any way close to possible? 
Well, I'll have an example which has already been achieved, and it actually was achieved without CRISPR, but, but with the kind of predecessor technology called Talens. They edited cattle to no longer grow horns. They started with a cattle breed that grows horns naturally. They used talent technology. Um, I don't know if they used it in uh, fertilized eggs or if they put it in stem cells and then did cloning. But the point is they used talents to edit a single region of the genome and that converted the cattle into one that no longer grows horns. Mm. Now imagine that, that you can use gene editing technology and literally take away an animal's capability to grow horns. I mean, that's, I think, one of the largest macroscopic, fantastical changes you could imagine making in an animal. I mean, could you also do the same thing to have a, a, a different animal grow horns that wouldn't normally? I think probably that'd be a little more complicated, but the point is you can make a single change in the genome and an animal will or won't grow horns as a result of that. So I think if you take that as one of the examples, I don't know, I think the more that we learn about the genome and how particular regions of the genome affect the resulting traits of an animal, it, we now have a technology that we can recreate those, those differences anywhere we'd like pretty much. So whether that's growing horns, um, growing different kinds of hair, um, the, the, the extent of muscle content, so that's something that's also been done time and time again in the research setting, um, editing a gene that's involved in muscle formation and showing that you can grow or you can result, you know, you can have animals that result from this that have about one and a half times the normal muscle content because of that single edit. You know, I think there are certain traits that we will be able to engineer using a tool like CRISPR because we know exactly what the genetic basis is for these very macroscopically evident traits. Hmm. That's, yeah, that's fascinating. So it actually is not too far from, from reality to think of uh, sort of a, a gen an actual genetic library and being able, being able to assemble different traits into uh, a single organism. I think, you know, it's, it comes back to that playground analogy. I mean, I think the more we have this list of mutations and their effect on animals and plants, now we can go in with CRISPR and start, you know, in theory, messing around with that catalog of mutations and try to affect a new kind of, of animal or an animal with new types of traits that they might not have naturally out in the wild. And, you know, it reminds me of a, of a short story I read um, a couple years ago while I was researching the book, and I'm going to blank on the author's name now, but the premise of the short story was... Uh, some future time where you can kind of go to a, a breeding specialist and request any custom animal. And in this case, the, the couple wanted a Pegasus, a horse with wings. And yeah, that was, that was easy for them. And of course we're not there yet, but, but if we can start using CRISPR to change whether or not an animal grows horns, I mean, what might we be able to do in 50 years or hundred years or a thousand years? I don't know. It's, it's, it's tough to know where that kind of powerful technology hits a ceiling. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. What are the biggest challenges right now, and what, what would you like to see happen, say, in the next five years? I think from a kind of a core technology perspective, there's still, um, there's still a lot to do in terms of perfecting 
the way that cells repair the the cuts that CRISPR makes in the genome. This could get us back into the weeds, but I'll try to simplify it by just saying, you know, CRISPR cuts DNA and the cell does the editing, but we don't have perfect control over how that editing works. And so certain kinds of edits are very easy. There are other kinds of edits that are much more challenging and tend to be much less efficient. And I think for a lot of the therapies that, that people imagine with a tool like CRISPR, the efficiencies of this more difficult type of edit will need to get much higher before we can talk about it being clinically feasible. And so there's a lot of work that's ongoing by some of my colleagues at Columbia and many, many researchers elsewhere to try to better understand the different factors that impact this precise type of repair and, and use that information to make it much more efficient. So that's kind of, I think, a challenge with just the core technology. Then I think there's going to be challenges in the delivery problem. So again, coming back to how do we go from editing cells grown in a Petri dish to editing cells in a living patient, that's going to require you know advances in how this is delivered into the body, what type of vectors is it delivered in, how do we make sure that that's safe and that it's not going to provoke some kind of adverse reaction in patients. And on that topic, there's been some um, very recent work that's not even published in a scientific journal yet, but it's been released in the form of preprints online that actually show that the human body in many cases has natural antibodies that are provoked by the very components from CRISPR that are being used in some of these therapeutic, um, therapeutic developments. Mm. So the risk here is that the body might actually have natural defenses against the CRISPR components that we might be using for medicine. And that's not a good situation to be in. And so there's right now ongoing work into really understanding this better. And, and, you know, I think that might be one bottleneck that we didn't think about a year ago that might, you know, create an extra hurdle into getting CRISPR based therapeutics into the clinic. Um, and then, you know, I think, I guess from your interview uh, with Amy, there's going to be this ongoing controversy over, you know, what are the applications where, it's not just about the technical feasibility, but also, you know, some of the ethical controversy over what should and shouldn't researchers and physicians be pursuing in terms of, you know, let's say editing human embryos or editing different kinds of germ cells that would make lasting changes in the human genome. And I think that's going to be a really interesting area to follow over the coming years, how not just scientists, but many other stakeholders um, weigh in on this on this other controversial area of gene editing technology and and how you know even the government and regulators will react to some of these new areas that might have been fanciful topics of imagination 10 or 20 years ago but now are very real issues with the kind of new power of CRISPR technology mm, yeah and I, I could imagine it'd be very difficult for, for two parents, if they know there's technology exists that could give make their their children healthier, stronger, faster, smarter, and um, it becomes almost a slippery slope. Where do you where do you stop in, 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 in giving your your children the best possible future that you possibly that, that, that you can? Um, so yeah, it's ethically it's very uh, it's very questionable. 
Yeah, and you'll find, I mean, I, I talk to a fair number of people about this, and you find people on completely opposite ends of the spectrum when it comes to whether or not we should go in this direction. Um, and that's, yeah, I, you know, I, I, I'm, my research couldn't be further from, from anything with human embryos. But, you know, I think one of the things I give Jennifer a lot of credit for is that, you know, even being one of the early developers of the technology, she recognized that these are issues that are now provoked by the very tools that we're studying and, and developing. And you can't really walk away from that issue. I think it's it requires all of us, whether or not we're scientists or members of the public, to really come to the table together and and be a part of that conversation. So that being said... Um what are your current thoughts about editing the human genome um, to say beyond repair but into sort of ethically uh, ethically ambiguous territory of uh, quote-unquote improving the human genome i i think the i think the technology is not at a point where that would be defensible on a safety on safety grounds because you know when you talk about enhancements i think the risk benefit assessment is very different because any risk is you know you the 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 status quo you're comparing to is a state of health or a state of being let's say you know without disease and so any downside to a, an intervention at that point would be very different than if your if your your point of comparison is a state of disease where there is a major cost to not pursuing a therapeutic because that's you know state upon which you need to improve for for well-being. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that was if I put that well, but you know my point being I think the risk benefit assessment changes a lot if you talk about an enhancement and I think we don't know nearly enough about the technology to say that it's safe enough to begin thinking about those kinds of applications. Um, I also think you know one of the issues that I have a lot of, of difficulty with kind of as, a, as thinking about new therapies coming out is the fact that even with um, commercially available therapeutics for genetic diseases that have been recently approved by the FDA, these are very expensive. They cost up to a million dollars. And so I think when it comes to thinking about where we should be investing our resources, I'd rather see us tackle existing areas of, 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 of health where we can do a lot more with a lot less than putting our resources into enhancements that would ultimately only be available to to the wealthy, I think at this point. Mm. So that's that's where I would say we are right now. I mean, I think it's it's really hard to say where where society will be in a hundred years. And I think when you talk about enhancements and germline editing, I often think, you know, I don't know what we're going to see in our lifetime, but but it's a it's a completely different equation when you talk about a hundred years or a thousand years into the future, where the technology will be far more advanced. And, and it's, it's going to be really hard to predict what's, what's going to be done then. Mm, yeah, and society will be much different as well. <clears throat> Absolutely. Uh, yeah, um, society continually evolves. I think it's also, um, it's also interesting to think about whether or not it would be possible to even stop that sort of thing from, from taking place. I think that uh, one of my big fears is that, you know, 
uh, we live in a world where money can pretty much buy anything. And uh, I think if there's enough money, then maybe these sorts of experiments will happen. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was, I occasionally get invited to speak at um, meetings with in vitro fertilization, you know, OBGYNs and people that are working at clinics offering IVF and pre-implantation genetic diagnosis and other assisted reproductive technologies. And one thing I've taken away from those meetings is there is, yeah, there's a major demand in that space um, in terms of what people are willing to pay. And I think that's that's the side of this issue that makes me uncomfortable is is thinking about how consumer demand will impact the development of some of these technologies. Um, and yeah, that makes it, you know, I don't know how I feel about it because you know, there are plenty of things we all benefit from that some people can afford and others can't. And you know, we don't live in a completely equal society, but somehow there's something different when we're talking about, you know, choosing, cho making decisions about the genetic composition of a future individual and how that sets up an entirely new kind of inequality than than the kinds of inequalities that we already have today in the sense that they will have a genome that was to some extent chosen for them or or improved upon by their parents that will last them through their lifetime and the lifetime of any future children that they have and, and you can imagine this kind of propagating over time if, if we have now a system where some people can can use technologies to change the genetics of their offspring whereas others can't and and that definitely should give one pause i think when thinking about that outcome yeah yeah definitely sobering i think it's uh amplifying the existing uh, inequalities like you said and it's um yeah it's a runaway train that we don't want to we don't want to even get started i think <laughs> yeah yeah but on the brighter side, though, I think <laughs> there's a lot to this technology in just making sick people healthy or preventing diseases um, just so people can live healthy, fulfilled lives um, and, and normal lives without being sick. I think that that is where all of the research is headed from what I understand now. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And I would add to that, you know, also understanding disease, I think. <laughs> As, as big as CRISPR may be for medicine, you know, it's being used a heck of a lot more in the basic research setting to understand disease by allowing researchers to, to mimic cancer-causing mutations or disease-associated mutations in cell lines, in animal models, in other model organisms, because it gives us a better insight into the cause and effect relationship between DNA mutations and the resulting properties of a cell. Mm. So I think even without the use of CRISPR as a therapeutic modality itself, it's completely changing the way we think about understanding disease, understanding basic biology. And I think the, the implications from that are gonna be potentially as great as the use of CRISPR in medicine itself. Yeah, and I think of what we started with, the sort of uh, bioluminescent gene from a jellyfish being used to actually let researchers see how um, you know DNA replication is taking place, or see uh, how cells are responding. I think that's a perfect example of that. That's absolutely, yeah. absolutely. That's really great. Well, I know you have a busy day ahead of you, and we're already over time. But um, 
just want to thank you so very much for taking the time to speak with me today. I truly appreciate it. And um, I think I could talk about this stuff all afternoon. And you're probably, you're going to go on to think about it all afternoon. So <laughs> That is true. Yep. Who's, who's next on your interview schedule? What's, what comes after embryo editing, CRISPR tools? What, what's next? Oh, oh. Uh, artificial intelligence, of course. Okay. That's a, it's the, it's what's hot in in science and technology now, right? Yeah. CRISPR <laughs> so and AI, sure. It's the most fascinating. I think there might be um, some overlap there as well, from what I can tell. Um, I think it'd be some. There's some interesting theories into actually using AI in order to determine how gene sequences function, or how they code for certain proteins. I think there's a role for AI to play there. Um, and, and people have, there have been a couple of papers recently using machine learning approaches for trying to better model CRISPR guide RNAs. And actually, I think um, Microsoft, some like mainly tech, you know, computer tech company recently published a paper using machine learning in this way. So, yeah, I think in biology, there's increasingly more and more instances where advanced algorithms and machine learning are going to really change the way we do do science so yeah yeah i think machine learning is changing the way we're gonna do everything so that's probably true yeah 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 it's it's fascinating it's exciting exciting times (laughs) well i look forward to hearing about that once that once that comes out great thank you very much appreciate it have a great afternoon and all right dustin good talking to you good luck all right thanks bye-bye Thanks for listening, and join me next time as we continue through the unknown.